Today we continue our journey through the book of Acts, um, as one theologian called it, the heaven on earth show. The book is about what it looks like when the life of heaven comes to birth on earth. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. It'll be page 758 in the, the Bible that was under your chair. Page 758. Now remember, Acts is the story of what Jesus continued to do after his death his resurrection and ascension through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we watch as the gospel starts with just a handful of Jewish believers and goes to the ends of the earth and becomes an uh, international movement that cannot be stopped. And uh, last week we looked at the ascension of Jesus and, and what that, mean, that means that Jesus ascended to the throne of heaven and that he is no longer inside of time and space. And I feel like Matthew, what are you talking about? I don't have time to explain it. Don't miss again. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but Jesus, because he is no longer in time and space, as, as Jeff said, uh, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's true because outside of time and space, he can be with each one of us where, where we are. And, and now we can have a relationship with Jesus. And because of the ascension, just want to briefly recap last week, uh, when we share the gospel, we speak the very words of Christ. I mean, that is incredibly powerful. And even the least in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is greater than John the Baptist, who was an incredible prophet, because we have the message of Jesus, this message of the good news. And, and so the, just a few implications of the ascension. I think we'll have it up on the screen, maybe. We got it. There we are. Uh, is that the ascension, it humbles us, because we have this great uh, ministry from Jesus sharing the good news so that humbles us because we are the representatives of Christ. And then the ascension raises us, raises us up because we have been given this authority and this truth that sets people free. And, and then it should also cause us to be patient with other believers uh, because sometimes when we look around and we see how Christians are behaving, how they're acting, sometimes we can be like, I'm not with them. But that's not what Jesus did for us. Jesus embraced us even though he knew that we were going to profane his name, that we were going to bring shame to the name of Jesus. He was patient with us, and so we should be patient with others as well. And so now in Acts 2, things start to get really exciting. The Holy Spirit is given. People repent. They put their faith in Jesus. The sick are healed. Prison gates are, are thrown open. And, and there's just an incredible move of the, the Holy Spirit. And uh, there is something in me that longs that this church, that the church in America would, re would reflect that first church where there was that joy and there was hope and, and there was just this uh, passion to know Jesus and to let other people know about Jesus. Like it was just this all-encompassing fire that consumed them. And um, I wish we were moving to chapter two today, especially since we spent three weeks in Acts chapter one. Unfortunately, uh, I don't think we can get to chapter 2 without looking at the rest of Acts chapter 1. Um, and if I'm honest, and I do my best to be honest when I'm preaching, all right, uh, there are portions of Scripture that I speed read. Right? They're a little boring, a bit dry. There's, there's no intrigue. There's no, there's no miracles. There aren't, uh, like it's hard for me to apply it to my life. There's no inspiration there. There's no uh, quotable like tweets, 120 characters that become part of my prayer life, like as a promise of God. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the, come on, 
if you read the Bible, you're like, oh, I don't know why I'm reading this. So it's kind of... Um, the, the end of Acts 1 is kind of like that for me. Um, I would have liked to have just skipped it ahead and got to the good stuff. Now, in Sermon Preaching 101, that's probably the worst sermon intro I could ever give. <laughs> like we're about to cover this portion of Scripture that uh, I wanted to skip right over. Like It doesn't excite me too much. But preaching through the Bible, uh, book by book, verse by verse, it forces us to wrestle with Scripture, with, to wrestle with all of it and to see uh, what, what God is doing and what he, how he wants to speak to our lives. And, and so Jesus uh, ascends, and, and then we get a glimpse of the character of the early church. And if we don't have the, what happens in the end of Acts chapter 1, I don't think what happens in Acts chapter 2 happens the way it happens if they weren't prepared at the end of Acts chapter 1. Does that make sense? Like they had to get ready. They had to prepare themselves for what God wanted to do. And that's what we have at the end of Acts chapter 1. So Jesus has just ascended. And what did Jesus tell them to do right before he ascended? I think I heard it. Somebody said, wait. Wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so let's pick up Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. So then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. That's about 3,000 feet, kilometer or so. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Those are the 11 remaining disciples. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Then Luke adds this, this side note here. With the payment he received from his wickedness, talking about Judas, Judas brought a, bought a field. Then he fell headlong. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. We'll come back to that. And everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language. I'm going to make up how you say this, all right? Is that all right? Al-Kadama, Al-Kadame, doesn't matter. That is field of blood. Uh, in this addition here, uh, of this word and why, like Luke is, um, he's writing to a not Jewish person, Theophilus. This is a reminder of that, that he has to explain because the Jews in the time of Jesus, uh, they spoke Aramaic. And so his audience, they didn't understand this word. So he says it's the field of blood. And for Peter, for said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Oof. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, I want to do something a little different today. 
We're going to start with the very last verse. just want to keep you on your toes. Make sure you're paying attention. Um, so what, what's happened here is that there's an open leadership position that needs to be filled among the uh, apostles. And what, what they do and, and what it says is uh, they draw lots in verse 26. Then they cast lots. Now drawing lots, that's just an ancient version of flipping coins. Like is, is that spiritual? Is that uh, something that we should uh, do today? I mean, can we flip a coin for God's will in our lives? Let's say you've, you've, got, uh, you've got two girlfriends. You've got to narrow it down to one. And you're like, I don't know. God, what do you want? Let me flip the coin. Uh, is that a practice when it comes to God's will in our life? That we, should we be <laughs> Having two girlfriends is probably not God's will. You're right, I'm right. I just mean the cat. So... Um, one of the benefits of, of going through uh, Scripture verse by verse, if you've been around the hills, I don't always preach this way, going through Scripture like this. Sometimes it's more what we call topical. This is called an expository sermon. Uh, but by going verse by verse, hopefully we become better readers of the Bible. Like we become better interpreters on our own of, of the Bible, and, and you're not uh, dependent uh, upon someone who's been to seminary to show you or to teach you what's in Scripture. Like you... I mean, hopefully, so, um, and you, you get to see the big picture when we go verse by verse and see, and see Scripture in context, um, and it's so important to, to know Scripture in context. So here's an example. The Bible says, and, and this is from the book of Kings, King Solomon loved many foreign women, I don't know why we're on this girlfriend, woman thing, uh, besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Jesus said, go and do likewise. I mean, that's out of context, right? That is not, Jesus didn't say that right there, but Jesus did say that. And Now, that's obvious, but what about Philippians 4.13? It's the favorite verse of athletes everywhere. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? Uh, but in the context I don't think Jesus is talking about athletes doing all things, even though I love that they write 413 under their eyes in the, in the paint. You're like, Matthew, what is the context? Well, you're going to have to look it up. I don't have time to tell you. <laughs> look at Philippians chapter 4. Um, but there, there are different types of literature in Scripture. Right? Some, some of Scripture is poetry. Uh, some Scripture is a letter written to a church or written to an individual. Some uh, portions of Scripture are, are narrative. Some are of scripture is apocalyptic. Like you get to some of the prophets, Ezekiel, or to the end, Revelation, and they're talking about the, the sun burning up. Like, what in the world? And, and when we read scripture well, we have to take into account the type of, of literature that it is. Does that make sense? And, and so Acts is narrative. And by, by narrative, I mean that it's a story. Right? It's a, there's a plot, there's a character, but I stay away from the word story because story, we tend to think of like a bedtime story, not true. And if we say stories, plural, we think they're all disconnected. But when we see it as a narrative, it's all God's narrative. It's weaved together God's one grand story. And, and, um, and when we read the Old Testament, we read a story that happens and we don't automatically think, all right, I need to do that because it's recorded there. Now, there, sometimes we do that. Like, have you ever heard of putting out a fleece? For God, 
Well, there's an Old Testament story of a guy named Gideon. And God had told Gideon what to do, that he was going to be with him. And Gideon was like, "Mm, I don't know. I'm going to put out this fleece right here on the ground. And if in the morning the fleece is wet and the ground all around it is dry, then, God, I will know that, that you're really with us. And guess what happens? It happens. He, he sleeps, he wakes up the next day, it's wet, it's dry. But Gideon's like, no, we're going to do this one more time. We're going we're gonna to flip it, right? I, want, I don't know what I said before, but it was the opposite. Like, I want the fleece to be dry, the ground to be wet, and it happened. And so we don't necessarily do that to God, but we put out uh, a proverbial fleece. Like if, if somebody calls me from California this week, it'll be a sign that I'm supposed to move to California. That's what God wants me to do. God doesn't want you to move to California and leave the Hills Church. <laughs> he wants you to stay right here, all right? No, no moving. Uh, but so we, we put out, so in a, in a sense, we, we see what Gideon did, but we, for, we don't realize that Gideon actually showed a lack of faith in what God had already told him when he put out the fleece. Um, that's another story. But when we come to Acts and we read the narratives, we, have, we struggle with, well, that's what happened, so am I supposed to do that same that same thing. And so here's some questions we need to ask ourselves as we interpret Scripture. So specifically Acts. Is Acts just describing the first church, or is it providing a norm for all times? That's one question. Yeah, we got them up there. Is it descriptive, or is it prescriptive? Is it describing what happened, or is it prescribing what, what should happen? Do biblical narratives describe what happened as well as what, as, uh, well as what must happen? So if it's uh, if it's recorded, is that what's being taught? Does, does that make sense? Um, so, and you say, well, Matthew, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And there's a story later in Acts we'll get to where, where Paul was preaching into the night, and a young man uh, falls asleep during the sermon. And you know what happens to him? He dies. He falls out the window, <laughs> falls to the ground. And so if we were to take that as prescriptive for us, if you fall asleep during one of my sermons, what should happen? So you see, it's not so easy just because something's recorded, like we're supposed to, you get what I'm saying? So when we get to, um, so here's the principle. So is it we must do this or we may do this? Unless scripture explicitly tells us we must do something. I think we've got this up here, yeah. What is only narrated or described does not function in a normative way, unless it can be demonstrated on other grounds that the author intended it to function in this way. Let that sink, let that. Again, this is, um, so the disciples flipped a coin. Should we? Should we flip a coin when it comes to, to God's will? And, um, but if we look at, at the, the whole passage there, what the disciples did, they studied scripture they set up qualifications. They selected two candidates, either of whom would have been a, a good choice. And then they prayed. And then they cast lots. By which, by Old Testament standards, was an acceptable form of finding God's will. However, we never again find mention of, of believers after next week, Pentecost, using lots to find God's will. Like they had the Holy Spirit uh, to guide them and, and to help them. And, and um, so I, I'd say probably not flipping a coin to find God's will. Um, now, you're thinking, Matthew, 
that was eight and a half minutes of trying to tell us if we should flip a coin for God's will. Is it really that important? First of all, stop looking at the clock. <laughs> Second, um, it, it's more about getting this broader picture of Scripture so that as we go through Scripture, as we're reading Scripture, we're interpreting it in a, in a solid biblical way. Does that make sense? Like, I want to help us be good readers of, of Scripture. And, and so they flipped a, a coin. So. But if we, if we step back from these verses we'll get a glimpse of the character of the early church. So I want to change gears just for a moment and look at what the disciples did, what these early followers did, some things that we can put into our own lives. I think that will prepare us for what God wants to do at the Hills Church. Uh, So the first thing we read, the first verse is that they went, in verse 12, they went back to Jerusalem. So they obeyed. One of the characteristics of this first church is that they obeyed Jesus. Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. and, And they they may not have wanted to go back to Jerusalem. I mean, that's where Jesus had just been killed. Like, there's still political turmoil going on. Like, hey, let's just go, uh, let's go over here to, go to another city, and God can give us his spirit there. But they chose to put themselves in, in harm's way to obey Christ. And, um, and any time that there is a move of God, obedience to Jesus is always uh, the first thing that, that happens. So they, they had this obedience for Jesus. They were marked by obedience. The second a characteristic of this first church is that they walked in unity. So the, the 11 disciples are named and they're, they joined together constantly in prayer along with the women. So it's not just a male group, right? And given this culture's usual downplaying of women's public roles, uh, the equal partic- participation of women is noteworthy. Like this wasn't a boys only club. Um, and apparently they're, they're even mixing with the men, which was a bit taboo. It wasn't completely unheard of in, in Jewish synagogues, but it wasn't custom. And so already we have women being elevated. And, and then Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned. And this, this is the last time in Scripture that Mary is mentioned. And she is part of this prayer service, and she's given a place of, of honor. Here, just by Luke mentioning her, gives her honor. And Mary has a, um, a place of honor in, this, in our story, in the story of Christianity. But they're not praying to Mary. Um, she was part of, of the prayer service, but they weren't praying to Mary. She wasn't elevated to that, to that level. And then Jesus' brothers are there. Now, previously in the Gospels, Jesus' brothers, they didn't believe in Jesus. So apparently after the resurrection, they're like, oh, maybe this is the real thing. And Jesus maybe appeared to them, we're not sure, but here they are, they, they believe. And, and then there's about 120 of them all together. And, and some theologians think, that 120 is mentioned because that was the minimum number of, of men needed to form a new community. So they had, they had the requirement of 120 men to start this new community. And then, you know, when we read the, like the listing of the disciples, I mean, that, that's a fast speed read for me. But this is not the first time that Luke has written out the names of the disciples. In this gospel, he also wrote out, that was his volume one before the book of Acts, he wrote out, and the list, while containing the same names, is a little different here. And so in, in Luke, it says uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In Acts, it starts off with Peter, John, James, and Andrew. Now, the, uh, in the first list, Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and John are actual brothers. And I'm not, it doesn't say why they switched the, the names around, but Peter and John, they were leaders in the early church. So they separated the brothers, but it could be, it could be pointing to the fact that our... Um, our bond in Christ creates such a deep 
brotherhood or sisterhood. And a couple verses later, uh, Peter calls them brothers and sisters. Like our, our bond is even greater than even our, our blood siblings, our blood kinship. So there's this idea of unity that, that runs through uh, this, this passage. Um, and verse 14 says, they all join together constantly in prayer. They are of one mind, one, one spirit. They are focusing their, their thoughts on the same purpose. Uh, it doesn't mean they didn't have different perspectives, but in this instance, they have one purpose in mind, to seek God for the promise of his spirit and his presence. And join together, if, if you grew up in church and you, with the King James Bible, it was one accord. They're all together in one accord, um, all 120 of them. And this, this, this phrase, join together in one accord, it is only in Scripture 11 times, but it's 10 times in the book of Acts. And it's used to describe their one accord in, in prayer in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 4, one accord in, in one, one place, and they were together in daily worship in the Lord's Supper. They were together in obedience. They were together in church business meeting, praise God. Um, and then the phrase is also used to describe the enemies of the gospel in the book of Acts. Like in one accord, the enemies came out to try to stop what was happening. And, and so unity is it's a powerful thing. And even when it's put for less savory things. And when we talk about unity, sometimes it's easier to, to think about what disunity is. Like what, what that looks like. And uh, we know what disunity feels like when we're not on the same page. When we don't have the same goals. And, and this just isn't a church thing. Like this is a relationship thing. Uh, a family thing. A, a work thing. Have you ever had a workplace where there was disunity? Like people have different goals and different objectives and, and different, like, disunity and discord. Um, so, so when we think about the opposite of that, um, or, or churches, churches are not immune to disunity, unfortunately. Uh, I'm thankful that in the Hills Church, uh, as, as long as we've existed, we've been pretty unified these last eight months, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but uh, so far, so far, so good. Um, but unity, it, it takes time and it takes proximity. The, the disciples were together, uh, these 120, for about 10 days uh, from the time Jesus ascended until what we're going to read about next week. And um, unity doesn't happen by accident and it doesn't happen overnight. And one of the problems with... Um, like the American church, and not just the American church, but our culture, is that nobody has time, right? We're just, we're busy, we, and we have, we have access to all kinds of things and opportunities, and they're good opportunities and good things, but our, our, we have mobility, we can go places, um, we can see things, and so we just don't have, we don't have time, and, and for many churches, it seems like the, the time that they put in is the hour and 19 minutes on the Sunday morning service. That's about when I try to get finished, if you were wondering. 11.19 is my goal every Sunday. Um, but we, that is the extent of our time together. Um, and we're trying hard to keep that from happening at the hills, and so we encourage authentic community outside of Sundays. We try to model it. Um, but it's, it's impossible for what we see happening in the rest of the book of Acts to happen if we're just gathering together for one hour a week. If nothing's happening outside of Sundays, if we're not gathering, I mean, first, just to share meals together, but second, like gathering to spend time with, in prayer, uh, reading scripture together. And, um, and I hope that when someone visit the hills, they, um, 
they experience a community not of strangers, but of deep friendship. Like, they, they see us engaging one another, and like, man, those people just have a deep community. They're united with one another, and so unity is it's essential, and it takes time, which leads naturally to our third observation, is that this first church was committed to prayer, right? It says they were together in what? In prayer in verse 14. Um, so this wasn't just a general unity, um, but it was a unity that comes only through prayer. Now, have you ever invited someone uh, to pray with you outside of a normal church function? Like, that's just, like, I... I personally have never done that. Like, hey, let's go mountain biking. Let's go catch a movie. Hey, let's, let's go pray for a half hour. That, that's different. That's uh, um, it's a, bit, a bit out there. Um, but I, I would go one step further and say, if you find yourself out of sync with another believer, try praying with and for that, that believer. Because uh, we aren't always going to agree. We aren't always going to like one another. We're going to be offended. You're, you're going to get upset. You're going to feel left out. And, and there is something that happens in our hearts when we begin to pray for one another. Like, try this. I don't know if there's anyone in your life at the moment who you are at odds with. Uh, and I even, I even try this in my marriage as best I can. Like, when Elora and I are having a, an argument and I'm angry, like, the thought comes to me, like, I, sh- I should pray. And I want to pray. Because you know, I know when I, like, in that moment, like, I want to be right. I want to win the argument. I want her to feel bad for what she said or what she did. Like, I, uh, in that moment, am not feeling very holy. Um, and so I, I don't want to pray because I know as soon as I pray, uh, and I'm not talking about the mean prayers. Like, God, help her to trip. And, you know, like, <laughs> she's walking. I don't pray like that. Uh, but as soon as we begin to pray and, uh, for that other person, there's something that happens inside of us and like that anger is, is dissipated and we've tried to forgive somebody and we had a hard time, we have bitterness in our life, but as soon as we pray for someone, it, like you can't help but forgive someone when you're praying for them. And uh, so here the disciples, they're, they're praying with one another. There's, uh, there's that unity happening and then it, it says they join together, not just in prayer. There's a word there, constantly in prayer. This is persevering prayer. If you've ever heard that term, uh, but a prayer, this is more than uh, rub-a-dub-dub, bless the scrub. You know what I mean? You guys ever pray that before your food? No? All right, you can try it. Um, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, whoever starts first gets the most. No, no, he's not. But this is, a, a, this is more, more than the one-sentence prayer. This was a constant prayer, like, like Jeff said, uh, praying without ceasing. Like, are we, when we examine our lives, are we spending time with our Father? Are we spending time in prayer, listening to His voice? And um, in most in most churches, um, when you look at their bulletin, like things that are going on, there's very little about praying together. We've got programs, and and I was as I was reflecting, getting ready for today about the Hills Church. I was thinking, as a church, we don't pray enough together as a church. We don't pray enough together as a church. And, and I immediately want to push back against that statement because any deficiency that I see in, like, who we are or in what we're doing as a church, I take it very personally. And so to say that, that uh, we're not praying together enough as a church 
is saying there's something wrong with my leadership, so I take it as a critique of me, and, and nobody likes feedback, right? No one's like, oh, thank you, thank you for that. That's awesome. I will work on that. Uh, and I don't like it because I'm a sinner, right? I don't like to hear. Um, and so my initial response to, like, we don't pray enough as a church is to say, well, we have our meetups. Like, we pray together at our meetups. If you're not part of our meetup, you should find out about one because uh, we do pray at our meetups. This Thursday at 7 o'clock, we're going to be at Hallett Academy, uh, 2950 uh, Jasmine. I believe the address is in your bulletin. And we're going to gather for a few moments and pray together uh, for 10 or 15 minutes. And then we're going to break into groups of two or three and, and walk around uh, Hallett, pray for the school, pray for the principal, pray for our sports camp that's coming up in a couple weeks, pray for the, uh, the neighbors that live around the school. Um, and we do that in the summer, but I, I think as a church, uh, once a month for an hour is not too much. Like that is not crazy, like five nights a week, but for once a month. And, and so after we get through summer, it's something I'm, I want us to continue to do as, as we even move into the winter. We won't be able to do prayer walks, but um, we, we need to pray together. We need to pray together. Um, and I would also encourage you every third Thursday, which this Thursday is, is to try fasting. Try fasting a meal, a couple meals, maybe fasting uh, the interweb, um, your smartphone, and just to be able to hear, hear God's voice. And so that's this Thursday. And, and our, our life and our church can't be built simply by good programs. It has to be uh, by a robust uh, prayer life and relying on, on the Spirit of God. And, and we didn't read them today, but in verse 4, 5, and 8, Jesus three times told his disciples to wait for this Holy Spirit, for this promise of the Holy Spirit. And then what the disciples do? They wait, and then they prayed for the Holy Spirit. Now, that's interesting because God has already promised them the Holy Spirit, so why did they pray? Because God's promises do not render prayer unnecessary. We talk about the promises of God. God's promises do not render prayer superfluous, like it doesn't matter in, anymore. In fact, God's promises, they give us the, the energy to pray because we know that God has already promised that promise to us. Does that make sense? And so God has promised them the Holy Spirit, but here they are still praying for the Holy Spirit. So they obey, they're unified, they pray, and, and finally, uh, the first church was committed to, uh, to Scripture, to the Bible. And I'll just briefly in our remaining time, when, when we read that, uh, Peter quotes scripture twice, right? And, and so Judas had one of the saddest stories in all scripture, had walked with Jesus, had known Jesus, then betrayed Jesus to his death, and then felt some kind of turmoil. I don't know if it was genuine repentance or, or what, but he went out and took his life. We read that he fell headlong. Uh, we're not sure exactly what happened in uh, another version. Uh, in the Gospels, it says that he hanged himself. But whatever, however it happened, like he, he took his life. And, and so he was one of the 12 disciples. And, and if it was me just reading through the story, I'd be like, oh, there's 11 disciples left. We still got this. Like, why do we need another? But Peter had his mind opened by Jesus after the resurrection. Jesus had gone and taught how all the scripture points to Jesus. And so now Peter's recalling some of the Psalms. And he's like, wait a second. This Psalm is actually about Jesus. And this Psalm tells us about Judas, that he would leave and, and that we need to find another leader. That's what we read in um, so that Psalm 109, verse 8. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. 
And so they knew what to do because they knew Scripture. They were studying Scripture. And um, I mean, they didn't choose just anyone. They had some qualifications. The person had to, to know Jesus or had to have been there from the beginning and to see Jesus' ministry, his, his life, his death, his resurrection. And, and so they, um, they, they appointed, by the flipping of a coin, uh, Matthias to that. And so then you had your 12 uh, disciples again. And this was the only time in, in, in church history where they replaced one of the apostles. Uh, there was 12 of them, and it, it matched. Jesus chose 12 apostles on purpose because there was 12 tribes of Israel. So 12 disciples, Jesus saying, I am uh, the new Israel. I am what Israel was, was supposed to be. And so he has these 12 tribes. And so now they're back to 12. And after James, who's listed on one of the disciples, dies, they don't replace him. Because he had died, he didn't leave like Judas left, obviously. And so that teaches us a couple things. One is that there was no, like after Peter died, he didn't pass his apostleship on to someone else. And they didn't pass it on to someone else. And it also means that there was 12 original apostles, like capital A apostles. Uh, we see in the book of Ephesians that there still are apostles, little a, that have the, the apostolic ministry of, of going into unknown places and taking the gospel. But there are no longer any apostles, like the 12 apostles. All right, does that make sense? No one who walked with Jesus saw him raised from the, from the dead. And so they studied scripture. They were in unity. They were praying. And, um, and now the stage is set for the day of Pentecost. We've gotten through the Acts chapter 1, the apostles have received Christ's commission. They've seen his ascension. The apostolic team is complete again. They've filled that role. And only one thing is missing. The Spirit has yet to come. So they've, they've filled Judas' role, but they have not uh, filled Jesus' role yet. But the Spirit is coming. And, and I want to encourage us as I conclude, is that what about us? We're about to get to the good stuff in the book of Acts, it's exciting and, and God's spirit is moving. But are we walking in obedience to Jesus? Are we constantly in prayer? Are we unified in our, our minds, uh, in our hearts with one another? Like that. Uh, so what happens in, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, I don't know if it happens the way it happens without the end of Acts chapter 1. Now, God is moving, and you can't stop what God is, is doing, but it might have looked a whole lot different if they had not prepared themselves for what God wanted to do. And I, I think God wants to, to move in our church and move in our, our neighborhood, and people come to Jesus and, and, and barriers uh, broken down. But we have to prepare ourselves. We've got to be ready. And so I just want to encourage all of us to be praying together, to come this Thursday to our, our prayer walk, to be part of a, a meetup, but even to call someone up, say, hey, can we, can we pray for a few minutes together? Can we, pray for our, can we pray for our neighborhood? Can we pray for our church? Can we pray for our families? Like spending time together praying. In just a moment, we're going to move to a time of communion, but let me, let me pray for us as we move that direction. Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us. I thank you for the story in the book of Acts, how you came and you moved and you were present with your people. And I pray that you would just give us a greater anticipation for what you want to do. Father, that, that we would expect you to do great things, that we would expect people who don't know you to come to know you, 
that we would, um, we would pray for the impossible. God, we have lived so long without seeing those things too often that we can begin to think, well, that was just for 2,000 years ago. God, so I pray for each of us that you would just open up our hearts, that we begin to seek you, to call on you, to recognize that we need you to come and to move among us, to make us alive, to make us a, a church, to make us a movement that is on the move, that is going to the ends of the earth as you commanded us. Amen.